do, uh, do people know the Lord of the Rings still? Is that... I, I don't even know if allusions to the Lord of the Rings works anymore. Uh, what I was teaching, I noticed that my, my go-to allusions when I started teaching after 10 years, they just didn't work. And so I, I'm going to take the risk here. Uh, one of the more transparently spiritual scenes in the Lord of the Rings occurs when this good wizard Gandalf, some of you know who that is, others don't. There's this guy named Gandalf, <laughs> and he visits a king named Theoden. He's king of a place called Rohan, uh, and he goes there with the aim of rousing him to gather an army, his army, against a rising tide of evil. In Tolkien's world, this was synonymous with the, the coming of the, uh, the tide of evil in world, before World War II. Even before, so Gandalf is taking a group there to visit him, and even before they arrive at the court, they are warned that it has become corrupted, that there's been a poison at work. And on arrival, they find truly uh, this poison has worked its way in by schemes and designs from this other wicked wizard named Saruman. An, a, an evil counselor named Grima, and people call him Wormtongue, very appropriate, Wormtongue, because his words worm they, their way in. And he has had the ear of the king for a while, and he's darkened his thoughts, he's darkened his thinking with despair. And the king has basically come into the grip of this wicked wizard, Saruman, through Wormtongue. Now, on arrival, Gandalf appears old and bent. He's wrapped in a gray cloak. He's leaning on his staff. There's dramatic irony here because we, the reader, we know there's, he's more than meets the eye. But when he comes before King Theoden... Uh, and it's time to break the control of this wicked wizard, this Saruman. And it's time to chase off his messenger. Gandalf throws off the guys, and he appears as he is. He, in fact, had been redeemed for the purpose of leading the fight against evil. And his authority and his mission, they're now clear and they're revealed. So this is a moment of reckoning. It's a moment of judgment. Judgment is going to fall here in this court. But whether in the book or whether in the movie version, as soon as Gandalf reveals himself, there's no doubt of the outcome. It's, there's going to be some action that takes place, but there's no question about the outcome here. There's no real match between true authority and false authority. And it's going to be on display. I have always found that a compelling moment because it conveys spiritual truth. Where the Lord Jesus asserts his authority, where God asserts his authority, evil and the agents of Satan, they have to flee. They ha it is no contest. For reasons known only to the Lord, he chooses to conceal his glory frequently. He conceals his might much of the time. He allows evil to spend its fury. We do look at our brothers and sisters around the world and see evil spending its fury on them. But when it pleases him to rout his enemies, it's done with ease. 
when his might is revealed. It's a simple matter. In his church, the Lord is unwilling for evil to take root. It is not his will for evil to take root in his church. It is his desire to purify his people, to refine his people. So whenever evil does get a foothold, and it does, churches do allow that to happen, there will be a reckoning. There will be a moment when evil will be exposed for what it is, and God will be glorified. The truth will be exonerated. The truth will be vindicated. Reckoning will come. When Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, a time of reckoning was on the footing. Reckoning was coming. If you have been uh, with us as we've walked through 2 Corinthians, I, I think you probably will have recognized the parallel between what I was describing there in the Hall of King Theoden and what we've been looking at here in 2 Corinthians. The work of Satan had gotten a foothold in Corinth. This had happened through the false teachers, false apostles who had come there. They'd uh, been able to mislead some of the leaders of the house churches in Corinth. They had turned the ch many of the churches of Corinth against the one who'd brought them the gospel, Paul. Before, before he comes to bring them correction, Paul had sent them another, a letter that we don't have, a sharp rebuke, a warning that uh, there would be a reckoning. He had sent Titus. And then he'd received word. He rejoiced because he received word that they had actually returned to the gospel. They had repented. They were ready to embrace him again. And yet, so he rejoiced. We heard that throughout the letter. He rejoiced. Order still remains to be restored there. Order in the church of Corinth. Because something had made them vulnerable to evil. Something had uh, worked in them that allowed them to receive a false message, to re accept false teachers, to take false teaching on board. And so as we've seen Paul wrapping up this letter, he's being very clear. He's going to confront any opponents that are there when he arrives. And he's going to confront any sin that's been welcomed. Any sin amongst the Christians that has been given a place, he's going to confront it. So here we are at chapter 12. We come in at verse 11. And here he turns from talking about fleshly weakness to the reality of true strength that he has in Christ. He has been relating. Last week we looked. He'd been relating about his weakness um, his bodily frailty, and how that has caused him to depend more and more heavily on Jesus Christ. What he experiences of in the flesh causes him increasingly more and more to lean on the grace and power of Jesus. But Christ Jesus truly is powerful in him. Truly. For when I am weak, he concluded, then I am strong. He didn't say, when I am weak, then I can still just get along. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Strong in the power of Christ. And that strength 
is just as real as the bodily weakness. The power of Christ flowing through Paul is something that these Corinthians have known from the beginning. And now he reminds them of it. Look with me. Verse 11. I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I myself am nothing. In myself am nothing. For you all know the signs of a true apostle that were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For the only thing you didn't receive was the burden of having to support me. They had received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So just to clarify what he's saying, when Paul came to Corinth, God gave abundant evidence that Paul's words were divine words. God gave abundant proof through divine acts that what Paul was saying with his mouth were in fact words from God. He was proving his messenger. He was saying, this is a legitimate ambassador. This is a true apostle. These, were, these proofs, we're told they were signs, wonders, and mighty works, mighty deeds, or miracles is another word for that. And these terms, they cover things like, uh, you might wonder, what does he mean by that? Things like impossible insights into someone's life. Insights into someone's heart. Paul was able to know things about people he couldn't have known. God revealed knowledge of a person's past or perhaps knowledge of the thing that would heal them. The thing they needed to hear. The truth that they needed to hear. There were timely appearances of, of uh, material need, material goods to meet a need. Timely provision. Dramatically, there was healing of body, healing of mind, healing of heart. Other signs uh, we read from 1 Corinthians included the speaking in other languages, the speaking in heavenly tongues, and the interpretation of those languages, and the interpretation of those heavenly tongues. The discernment of spirits. Is this a... Is the spirit that is settling on this person or in this group, is this from God or is this uh, an opposing spirit? We know from 1 Corinthians that uh, when Paul was there for almost two years, all of these were at work. Signs, wonders, miracles, it was all there. Uh, in fact, he, he acknowledges in 1 Corinthians, they were, this church of Corinth was abundantly blessed in these things. The obvious conclusion was that the words and the acts came from the same source in God. That they verified Paul as a messenger, a true messenger of the Lord Jesus. And so he brings that up. As he's bringing up this confrontation that's going to come, the showdown, the reckoning. He's bringing up this verified power of Jesus Christ. That's, that was in him, that they know was in him. So that's the first thing he wants them to remember. He's a true apostle, and they know it. Verified by God. The second thing we look in chapter 12 here is that he loves them. 
They know he's a true apostle and he loves them. So contrary to the accusations, these uh, false teachers have been bringing an accusation. The reason he doesn't charge you is because he knows his teaching is not worth anything. And he doesn't want to give you the honor of contributing because there's an honor there. So he's dishonoring you and he's actually not worth anything. But Paul says the reason for that is he loves them. Verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent. Spend his resources and be spent in his energy for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less because I loved you that more, that much more? He has acted towards them, he says, like a father, working for his children, saving for his children, sacrificing for his children. That's what fathers do. They spend themselves. That's how they ought to be. Spend themselves for the sake of children. And he says, anyone that I send to you, Titus, Timothy, Silas, anyone that's come to you, comes with that same spirit, that same attitude. And that's one way you can tell they're legitimate. Now, what I'm suggesting here, I, Ben, here, what I'm suggesting here is that at the end of this letter, Paul is taking up a posture that he's reluctant to adopt. He's uncomfortable with this. For the last several chapters, he's been uncomfortable with this posture. He, he said so. It's the posture of direct confrontation using his authority from Christ Jesus. He would much rather not have to take up this position. The authority of an apostle to bind and loose, to bring judgment within the visible church, removing people from the protection of the church, delivering them, handing them over to their rebellion. Do you insist on your rebellion? then I will give you that. Handing them to their rebellion, and in their rebellion, they become subject to the chief rebel, the enemy of God. As he moves toward that posture, he wants his, these beloved Corinthians that he has poured out his love for to know that he does this as a spiritual father. Discipline comes out of love. So he asks a rhetorical question, verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that I was trying to defend myself? Over, over this last part of his discussion, have we been trying to defend ourselves? Have, I, have you been thinking I was trying to get you to accept me? Have you been thinking I'm trying to win your approval? Nope. As far as approval goes, Paul cares only for the opinion of Jesus Christ. There is one opinion that matters to him. He speaks in the sight of Christ. That's the sight he cares about. One audience. The reason he's trying to get them to see straight is for their sake. It's not for his sake, but their sake. It's for their upbuilding, he says. And so what he fears, now he moves in the last two sentences of this section, what he fears 
is that not only will he have to confront false apostles, but that in driving out their evil influence, driving out the poison that has settled into Corinth, he will have to bring his authority to bear on the church. These are people he loves, for whom he has sacrificed. He fears they have turned back to a sinful life because of the false teachers. And he fears the pain of having to bring discipline to them. There's two areas that he's been made aware of. Verse 20. He knows that the factious, divisive influence of these teachers has brought trouble between people between house churches, between leaders of these churches. There's been, he says, quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, in a word, disorder. He fears that he's going to find that still present because it's seeped in. The pride of the false teachers, Satan's pride, has spilled over. And so what the, what they have had the opposite to the mind of Christ. In his letter to the Philippians, he tells us about the mind of Christ. Instead of having the same love, being in full accord, having one mind, they have the opposite. They have selfish ambition, conceit. Each one of them considering himself more significant, more important than the others. And so Paul fears... He's going to find this attitude, this outlook still present. And if this poison is allowed to remain, especially if that poison is allowed to remain among leaders, the church of Corinth is going to be divided and conquered. Where there is quarreling, conceit, selfish ambition amongst God's people, we are being divided and conquered. Satan is working his way among us. He is, that is his strategy. The second problem, though, so that, that's the first, that there, there may be this factiousness that's still seated there. The second is that the false teachers excuse some very popular sins, popular sins in Corinth. So if you remember when we started looking at 2 Corinthians, in introducing this place, I said, Corinth is a seaport. There's uh, an ocean on either side of this little isthmus. Corinth sits there. There's a mountain right above Corinth. And it's a seaport town, and it has all the vices of a seaport. As the sailors come in and the merchants come in. And that temple, uh, temple to Venus Aphrodite, sat above Corinth. And there were a thousand prostitutes in that temple at this time. It's a city of 90,000 people with a thousand prostitutes. So one reason these false teachers have been welcomed is that they, they gave license. They allowed Christians to have one foot in the church and one foot in paganism. Uh, there's a, a common interpretation is that 
part of their teaching was that to get to the full knowledge of God, you had to access it by all the ways. And that there was access to mysteries of God that you could only get through the temple on the hill. So they gave excuse to popular sins. And Paul fears he is going to have the pain of disciplining his own children in the Lord. These children who feel entitled to live, to live in the way that, uh, of this dark spiritual society. The darkness of their surroundings. That they feel they, they now have a right to that. He's going to have to confront them. And he refers to this as humbling him. This would be a humbling from the Lord. It will bring him low. It will, it's going to cause him to mourn if he has to confront this and possibly remove some people that he's poured his love and his energy into. He may have to remove because they have chosen and they have claimed as a right to live in this vice to live like their society, to turn against the Lord Jesus. I think this is principally the point of connection for us as we apply this today. We don't have apostolic authority, but we do have the authority of the truth. We have been given the truth. So what I mean is the fact that God has given himself to you that he's revealed in his word the truth about who he is what he's like the kind of life that comes from him that means you walk around with an authority of knowledge that you have an authority of insight today as you sit here god has given you insight into the truth and so he shows you what is good. He shows you what is evil. Like the man that was chained in Plato's cave and set free. You see. You see. So for those that we love, friends, family, especially parents for children, it is loving to share the truth with them. So why would we withhold life from someone? Why would we withhold what gives life? But we see something really crucial here throughout 2 Corinthians. You can only do this successfully if your voice counts as a voice of authority in their life. You can only speak with the authority of truth successfully if you have authority in someone's life, if they see you as a voice of authority. I'm going to unpack this. Paul was able to reestablish his authority in Corinth simply by reminding them of the gospel, simply by telling them the truth that they knew and had accepted, how he had lived in and how he had lived in dependence on Jesus. He was able to reestablish authority because he was consistent. His words, his actions were consistent. We all know that if you lack consistency, that is, if you lack integrity in your life, 
and you don't live according to what you profess, you lose authority. That's no secret. We all know that, right? We often say you lose credibility. That's just a way of saying that our voice has no authority in someone else's life. Jesus pointed out how the Pharisees had no authority because they lived inconsistently with what they professed. So, if your voice has lost weight, if it has lost credibility with friends or family, you've got to remember that all you ever had was the authority of the truth. That was, that was the only weight you ever had. Because otherwise you were just posing and trying to control. If I live as if I am not dependent on God, as if I don't need Him every moment, and I don't need His mercy, uh, I lose the only authority I ever had, and it, which is derived from the gospel that's been revealed to us. All I have ever had is simple truth. All, all that has ever been effective, if I stand here, is the simple truth of the message itself. There is nothing that comes from an inherent power or persuasion that I have. For all of us, this word that we're encountering here tells us that if we have lost our credibility or the truth has lost its weight in our mouths, the only way to get it back is honest repentance and declaring our own need for the gospel. That's the only way to get it back. If you have wronged someone, if you've lived an inconsistent life in front of your spouse and kids or your friends and your family, admit that. That's the way of weakness. That's what we've been told here throughout the weeks. It's the way of weakness. It's the way of the cross. It's admitting our dependence on Jesus. Stop being a moralist and a perfectionist. I don't know if that's what you struggle with. Moralism and perfectionism leads us to failure inevitably. Stop it. It is a false religion to call people to moralism. That is a false gospel. We must not point to ourselves and say, live like us, and you'll find life. Look at me, do the things I do, and you'll be saved. The truth is, we need the saving help of Jesus in every area of our lives, at all times, every moment, just like people who don't yet know him. The thing that they need, we need. That's the gospel. You do, in fact, need the cross and the grace of Jesus, moment by moment, along with everyone else. If you have been a moralist, or you're, you failed at being a moralist, and so you threw up your hands and said, 
uh, I am going to just accept the moral emptiness of society. Those are the extremes. I'll be a perfectionist. I will embrace sin. The best way for you to regain consistency between a Christian profession, what we profess as the truth, and your life is to begin admitting your failure at living faithfully and asking forgiveness and showing a willingness to grant forgiveness. What I'm saying is realign with the gospel. Realign with the gospel that we need. Only then can we be heard as having a voice of authority. Having a voice that speaks truth. Not mastery. Not a personal authority. But as one who, who really does know the truth. A truth that we need. A truth that they need. Uh, let's pray. Father in heaven. We, like the church in Corinth, need the truth of your gospel. We admit that we have never been able to earn your favor. We've never been able to perform our way to your approval. We admit we have called others to try to get your approval. Lord, we ask that you would put truth back in our mouths, truth back in our hearts. And that you would restore to us whatever measure of the authority of truth that you're willing to grant to us in the lives of our friends and our family where we have lost credibility, would you restore it through our honesty? Would you restore it through integrity? A willingness to admit our need that through our weakness, we may be strong. In Jesus' name.